Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 5. If you've been here for several weeks, if you're a member here, you know we've been working through the book of Galatians. And then uh, Mark and Tim, two of our, our other elders, have been preaching through 1 Samuel when we're not in Galatians. But in Galatians, we're here in chapter 5. And in particular, we're in verses 16 through 24. Um, if you look on the back of the worship guide, there's an outline there, kind of the main points that we think we see in this passage. There they are for you to see where we're going, maybe help you get a better handle. You could write something down there if you think that'd be helpful. It'll definitely be helpful if you've got the, the Bible open in front of you to Galatians 5, so you can see as we reference these particular verses. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. Uh, one thing that I've been reminded of being a parent is that humans will pursue something more vigorously once they know that they can do it. So if there's, if there's something that somebody's trying to do and, and at first they don't think they can do it, it's easy to not pursue that thing vigorously at least. And we see that all the time in parenting. So, so the kids might not be crazy about swimming until they get in the pool and they can actually swim a little bit and then it's vigorous in the way that they pursue that or hitting a baseball or getting a good grade on a test. You know, and it works that way, not just for kids, but for adults too. Once we know that something's achievable, that we can actually attain it, that we can actually do it, it makes it easier to pursue that thing vigorously. Well, what Paul is telling the Galatian Christians in our passage this morning and us is that denying our sinful nature, turning away from sin, pursuing holiness, pursuing the life that God has for us, that's actually a possibility for us as Christians because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And because of that, because it's attainable, he tells us to walk according to that spirit. That's the main idea of this passage. So with that in mind, hear the word of the Lord. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. The Lord says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, this is the passage that we're looking at. You'll see the main points listed there, and we'll move through them. The, the first thing that we're going to see here is that you'll have to fight against sin every day of your life. It's kind of the bad news before the good news, but that's the way that our passage starts. And that's the first thing that we'll look at in this passage. You will have to fight against sin every day of your life. Um, a few months ago, I, I woke up Hayes, and it was a Saturday. Hayes is uh, our youngest boy. He's five. I woke him up and it was a Saturday and, and he asked if, um, if I was going to work because, you know, 
five days out of the week, if I wake him up, then, then the answer is yes. So he asked if I had to go to work, and I said no. And he said, oh, so you're done with work. And I said, well, yeah, for the next two days, I'm done with work. And he said, okay, well, so when are you going to be done with work for good? You know, like retire. And I said, well, that, you know, it'll, it'll be a while, Lord willing, hopefully. But, well, sometimes Christians have thought that, that they could move past their battle with sin. Sometimes Christians have thought, no, we can get to the point where we won't have to deal with the sinful flesh any longer. We can sort of put it under submission completely and move on from sin. Maybe there'll come a day where, where we get to retire from that fight and, and it's all done. But see, that's not true. And that's the first thing that Paul shows us here. So during this earthly life, the war against your sinful flesh is a war that doesn't end. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's this battle that will continue on. And, and the Lord can say this to every living Christian. Every Christian who is in the flesh, the terminology he uses. So, so as long as you're in the flesh, as long as you're alive, the desires of your flesh will be against the spirit. They will be fighting back and forth. So in other words, in this life, your flesh will always be for sin. Now, now what kinds of sins are we talking about? What are some of our specific enemies? Well, Paul gives us a list, not an exhaustive list, but some examples. Look down at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now again, this isn't an exhaustive list. That's why at the very end of verse 21 there, you see that phrase, and things like these. He's saying, no, these are examples. These are categories of sins, right? But, but there's more sins than, than these particular things, but this is at least a good start where Paul gives this list. And Paul's pretty clearly grouping these examples into, into certain categories. I think probably four of them. So sexual sins, spiritual sins. By that, I just mean sins that are kind of uniquely aimed at the Lord. Interpersonal sins, so sins between people and then corporate sins or, or group sins. So let's look at some of these categories. This is an enemy sin that we'll have to fight against for the rest of our life. Again, that's our first main point. So it helps to see some particular kinds of sins that we will have to fight against. So look at the first category, verse 19. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now there's a lot of overlap in these three terms. In fact, when you're reading the Bible and you see a list of things where Paul or somebody else is kind of stacking up terms, there's almost always some overlap. Hardly ever are there clear walls between those things. No, it's usually he's trying to build up a case for kind of this main idea, and he's using all these different words that kind of get at the same thing. Well, that's what he's doing here. There's a lot of overlap between these terms. So the, the first word he uses here is sexual immorality. And, and that's a term that's used in scripture. It's usually a general term describing any sexual sin. So it's, it's sort of an umbrella term in that way. It includes adultery in the Bible and premarital sex and homosexual acts and bestiality. It's, it's the word, you might remember this, but it's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 6 and Matthew 19 
to talk about one exception for divorce as sexual immorality. So that's what he's, he's talking about here. It's a catch-all for any time someone is having intercourse with someone other than their opposite sex spouse. That's sexual immorality. That's the first thing that Paul is saying here. The second word he uses, obviously overlap here, is impurity. This word seems to focus a little bit more on the effects of sexual immorality, the effects of sexual sin. So the New Testament is clear that all sin is the same in certain ways, but sin can also be different in certain ways. So, so all sin is the same in this way. Any sin is enough to separate us from God. Just one sin, and you can pick which sin. There's lots of them to choose from. You could pick any of them, and one sin is enough to keep you or me separated from God for all eternity if that sin isn't paid for by the blood of Christ. That's the way that every sin is exactly the same. But the New Testament is also clear that in this example that sexual sin is unique in a certain way. It's unique in a certain way, and, and, and its uniqueness has practical effects that's what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. So with that in mind, listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Same word that he just used here in Galatians. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So see, Paul is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's drawing a bit of a distinction there. Okay, certain sins are unique in certain ways. Sexual sin is unique in this way. I think that's what the word impure is probably getting at. Sexual sin will take its toll on someone in a different way than, than certain other sins will. Now, we remember, as long as someone is breathing, no matter how sexually broken they are, no matter how sexually sinful they are, there's always an opportunity to repent and have those sins forgiven by the blood of Christ. Right? Jesus' blood is bigger than any sin or any group of sins. Praise the Lord for that. So somebody can always repent, seek, uh, seek reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. But, but until that happens, the one who gives themselves to sexual sin is becoming more and more impure, the, the way Paul is talking about it here. And, and a really bad earthly effect of sexual sin is described by the last word Paul uses here. He says, now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Okay, so, so what's he getting at there? It's still in this domain of sexual sin, but what's he getting at uniquely with sensuality? Well, sensuality, it looks like it's the belief that you have a license to sexual sin. So somebody who thinks, yeah, this is, this is fine for me to do this thing. You have a license. It's, it's okay. It's, sensuality is the lack of restraint which develops over time as, as somebody gives into sexual sin more and more. So in Ephesians chapter four, verse 19, Paul connects that idea of sensuality with becoming callous. Is the way he says it there, being desensitized to sexual sin. And Paul's point with all this is that sexual sin is, is one of the chief ways that our sinful nature will show itself. It's, it's one of the chief categories of sin that we will have to fight against and fight against our entire life as long as we're in the flesh well the second category we see is is spiritual sin again these are sins that are kind of uniquely aimed at the lord look at verse 20. first two there he says idolatry and sorcery 
So these two words are, are getting at one main idea, the, the sin of rejecting God and turning to the world instead. Now, idolatry, you're probably more familiar with. That, that's just the rejection of God in terms of worship. So when an idol is just something that we choose to worship instead of the one true God. When we trade out worship of the one true God for worship of anything else, that thing has become an idol. There's a New Testament scholar named Don Carson. He, he talks about it this way. He says, idolatry is anytime we're looking for our hope, happiness, significance, or security in any place other than the one true God. Isn't that a good definition? So helpful. Anytime we're looking for our hope, happiness, significance, or security, ultimately from something other than the one true God. Well, you can do that with anything, right? Idolatry can make can take a million different forms. You could make your children an idol. You could make your job an idol. You could make physical health an idol. Your money or possessions, you can make those an idol. You can make your hobbies an idol. And our sinful flesh, it, it loves all of that idolatry and it wants to produce as much of it as is possible. That's what your sinful nature, that's what my sinful nature wants to do. In fact, uh, John Calvin, the 16th century pastor, he said the human heart is an idol factory. So the picture is like almost like those cartoons where you've got a factory and there's a conveyor belt and it's just pumping out this product. That's what our hearts do with idols. In our sinful nature, regularly producing idol after idol. But then Paul lists this other sin in verse 20, probably less familiar with this. After idolatry, he says sorcery. Now, that's probably one of those sins where you read it and you think, oh, praise God, there's a sin in the Bible that I don't struggle with, right? Sorcery. Sorry, unfortunately, not so fast. So what's at the heart of this idea? Okay, well, well witchcraft and, and sorcery and fortune-telling and talking with spirits, these things you see in the Bible, all of that's condemned in the Bible for the same reason. All those things are the human desire to take control of the world for ourselves, Not trusting God's control of the world, but wanting to control our life, reality, the world, wanting to control those things ourselves, to put it in our hands. Okay, now that's a desire we all struggle with, isn't it? I mean, how many times does something bad happen to you in life or you hear about something happening in the world and you're not tempted to think, oh, I wish that I was in charge. I wish that thing, that thing shouldn't have happened. And even though you wouldn't say the words, probably God made a mistake, that's the feeling of your heart. Oh, God made a mistake. If only I was on the throne in that moment, I could have done that thing right. We all struggle with that desire. We're, we're all tempted to try and manipulate the universe in that way. But of course, that's not our position. We're, we're not the controller of the universe, which is good, by the way. Praise God for that. God is and we don't want to reject his authority by making those kinds of judgments. Well, see, that's what sorcery does. And in that way, it's, it's a rejection of God, just like idolatry is, just sort of a different angle on it. And again, these kinds of sins, this is a category we will have to fight against for the rest of our lives. Look at the next category here. It's the longest list. Look at verse 20. After idolatry, Paul says, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. 
Okay, these are all interpersonal sins, which means they're sins between two people or groups of people where we sin against one another. And just like the words Paul uses for sexual sin, these terms overlap one another in meaning. It's not like there's a crisp wall set up. This is precisely this, and this word means something completely different. No, there's some overlap here. And, and the list includes sins that, that we can keep one another from seeing. Again, this is the way that Christianity is different than most world religions. Most world religions, totally satisfied if you just don't perform sins that other people can see. If it's happening in your head and in your heart, almost every world religion couldn't care less. Fine. Whatever happens in there, no big deal. Just don't act on it, world religions would say, other than Christianity. Of course, the Lord is interested in our heart. So he cares what's going on inside of us. So there's these internal sins, jealousy and envy, Paul says. But it, it also includes outward sins that are easily seen like fits of anger. You can't have a fit of anger and have somebody not see it. In college, we had racquetball courts. And so I thought, oh, this would be a fun thing to do with friends, racquetball. It was not a fun thing to do with friends. It was a thing that regularly until I quit doing it, hopefully I could do it now, although it would be much less pretty and probably detrimental physically, but hopefully it wouldn't be spiritually as bad. But I had some fits of anger in a racquetball court. And that's not a thing. And the thing about racquetball courts is it's all glass. So everybody can see what's happening there, right? So there's these easily seen sins like fits of anger. But then in, in, in this group, it, it also includes sins against other, others that are a bit in between. Sins that people can see, but are sometimes easy to overlook, like enmity and strife and rivalries and dissensions. And the main idea here is that there's some reason that you're upset with somebody else. And Paul looks like he's thinking about the church in particular. Of course, we, we have rivalries and dissensions with other people as well, but it looks like he's talking about in the context of a local church. So maybe you disagree with somebody about something or maybe they hurt your feelings in some way and and then you let that anger grow bigger and bigger until it's separating you from that person you feel that kind of division and sometimes those conflicts can even lead to other folks in the church having to choose sides that's something that has happened in churches so it's it's creating factions look up at verse 14 we looked at this uh last week for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Because Paul's talking about these kind of interpersonal sins in the Galatian churches. And he says by doing those things, people aren't loving one another. And this is another brand of sin we'll have to fight against for our entire lives. Interpersonal sins. But, but the final category shows us that oftentimes our flesh isn't satisfied simply to pull us into sin alone. Oftentimes our flesh wants to include other people in those sins as well. So the final category is corporate sins or group sins or team sins. Look at the second and third sins listed in verse 21. Paul talks about drunkenness and orgies. Well, right off the bat, let's be reminded that drunkenness is a sin. It's a good thing for us to remember and, and notice the Lord doesn't say that it's just drunk driving that's a sin. I mean, a bit anachronistic, cars weren't around then, right? But, but you see what I'm saying? He, he doesn't say that only public drunkenness is a sin. 
So those are the things that our society would say, yeah, that's bad, right? But if you just get drunk in the confines of your home or if you have somebody else to drive you, most people in our culture would think, yeah, no big deal. That's not what the Lord says. No, he, he says all drunkenness is a sin. Now, now, some of you don't drink alcohol. And so this is a sin that, that you don't have to worry about. And to you, we should just, just point out the fact that Paul could have said drinking alcohol is a sin. Paul knew all sorts of words. He could have put those words down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. No, he's, he says drunkenness is a sin. But this passage, it's, it's mainly applicable to those of you whose, whose conscience is okay to drink alcohol and, and who at least every now and then drink alcohol. And what the Lord is saying is, don't get drunk. If you do that, you're in sin. So he says, don't do that. You, you can use this gift from God if you so choose, but don't misuse his gift. So Paul lists these two sins together, drunkenness and orgies. And, and it's interesting, I'm not going to comment too much on the second one because there's little ears. I think we all know what's happening here. But I will say this, Paul lists these two sins together. And that's interesting, isn't it? He lists them together, drunkenness and orgies. Not only here, but there's two other places in the New Testament, Romans 13, 1 Peter 4, group these two sins together as well. I think that's because oftentimes they go hand in hand. Oftentimes, drunkenness will lead to orgies. Oftentimes, those things go together. But, but I also think they're coupled together because they aren't individual sins. They're team sins. Now, again, the second one, you understand how that's a team sin. Pretty obvious. But, but the first one sort of is, too. People typically don't get drunk by themselves. Sometimes that happens, but usually not, right? That's why there's bars. People enjoy being together when they do that sort of thing. And it was like that in the first century as well. Getting drunk was typically always has been a group activity. And see, the sinful flesh, if it can, it likes to sin in a group. It, it likes for us to pull others into that sin. And again, that impulse, that's something we'll have to fight as long as we're in this flesh, as long as we're in this world. So, so these are just some of the sins we'll have to fight against for the rest of our lives. And we understand this, but, but when you became a Christian, God didn't completely take away your desire to sin. It would have been great if he had done that. Now, he has a better purpose, so the way he does it is actually better for us, even if we don't understand completely why that is. But no, we still have this sinful flesh. We still have this desire to sin. And that means sins like these will have a certain appeal to us until the day we die or Jesus comes back. And what that means is we'll have to fight against sins like these every day for the rest of our lives. Now, before we move on, let's see why we should fight. Because Paul inserts this understanding. He inserts this truth about why this is significant, why we should fight against these kinds of sins and, and all sin. And he, he answers that question by showing us what will happen to the person who doesn't fight sin, who just completely gives in to the sinful flesh. So after he lists all these sins, in the middle of verse 21, he says this. Look there, middle of verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, that's a scary sentence, right? So what's, what's Paul mean by that? Well, we know he's not saying that anybody who sins in one of these categories is not getting into heaven. 
We know he's not saying that. Praise the Lord. That would mean that everybody in this room is kept out of the kingdom of God for eternity. None of us could be there because we have all sinned. And the Bible makes it clear Christians will continue to sin until they die. That's what we've been talking about. Paul acknowledged that at the very beginning of our passage, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So he says there, yeah, Christians, you'll continue to sin. You'll continue to do things that you don't want to do because of the presence of your sinful flesh. I'll read a few other passages from the New Testament that make it really clear. Christians continue to sin even after being Christians. This is 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is James 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. This is Philippians 3.12. Paul says, I am not already perfect. So the Christian life will have sin in it. Now, what verse 21 is talking about is the Christian life won't be characterized by unrepentant sin. The Christian is the sinner who feels conviction for sin and desires to turn from it, to repent. The Christian won't be characterized by unrepentant sin. The Christian won't give themselves over to sin completely. It's the same kind of thing Paul says in Ephesians 5, 5, where he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the, the Christian won't fully defeat sin in this life, but the Christian won't forfeit either right? It'll be a fight. We don't completely give in. And Paul's saying for the person who completely forfeits to sin, who completely gives himself over to sin, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a good reason to fight, isn't it? Okay, but, but how in the world can you win that battle? Because the enemy inside of us, our sinful nature is strong. Like we saw in verse 17, the flesh is strong enough to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And the stakes are really high. So is there any hope? What are we supposed to do here? Should we have any hope that we can, that we can defeat sin in our lives? Well, of course, the answer is yes, there is hope. And, and there is a sure hope. So as Christians, our hope is the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's our hope. That's kind of the main idea of this passage. Now, you may be here and not be a Christian. You may not know much about the Holy Spirit. So the, the Bible teaches us that, that the one true God of the universe, he's not a simplistic, thin, two-dimensional God. The, the way that other religions that kind of made up that God, the way that they would say that the God is. No, the real God is complex and three-dimensional and, and deep. And, and part of his richness, part of his complexity is that he's one God but in the unity of one God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, who's Jesus Christ, and, and the Holy Spirit. And we see all three persons actually at the very beginning of the Bible. So our call to worship this morning, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, all three persons of our one God are there in that passage. So it's the Father who speaks creation into existence. Well, then in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, we're told that the word that God speaks is actually the Son. So there's the Father and the Son. And we're told that God, uh, the Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. 
So this, this is the doctrine that Christians from early on in church history began to call the Trinity. So when someone becomes a Christian, God gives them not only a relationship with the Father, and not only the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross, he gives Christians the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who lives inside of us. And it's this person of the Holy Spirit that is the key to fighting our sinful flesh. That's why the words, the Spirit, show up seven times in these final few verses in chapter 5 here in Galatians. Again, it's how our passage begins, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, so the idea is you, on your own, not strong enough to defeat your sinful flesh. Me, on my own, not strong enough. I'll be overcome every single time, on my own, fighting the sinful flesh, but the Spirit, strong enough to fight the sinful flesh. The Spirit, strong enough to overcome sin. Look at, look at the work the Spirit does inside of us as Christians. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, that just means the, the things that the Spirit produces. So the idea is the Holy Spirit is the tree. It produces fruit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The sinful flesh does not want any of those things. Your sinful nature doesn't want any of those qualities. It wants to run the other direction, but the Spirit still produces those things in the Christian. So the, the Holy Spirit is the answer to turning away from sin. The, the Holy Spirit is the only way we can, in the words of verse 21, inherit the kingdom of God. And if you're a Christian, it's this spirit that lives inside of you. It's a crazy thought. This spirit is in you right now, aiding you as you hear the word of God preached. The spirit is inside of you. To use the language of scripture, it indwells you. And God made this promise to put his spirit inside of his people. He made this promise way back in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, in the prophets in particular. Listen to part of our Old Testament reading from this morning that Tim Hooser read from Ezekiel 36, verse 27. It's a promise God makes to his people. He says, and I will put my spirit within you. Okay, so what's the spirit going to do? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you so that you could turn away from sin. That's one of the chief purposes, why he gave you his spirit. And the Holy Spirit inside of you will accomplish the task for which he was sent. He, he will grow you more and more in turning away from sin and turning to the Lord. Like we read in the congregational reading earlier, this is Romans 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and if you're a Christian, he does, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, this is an incredible thing. Here's what Paul just said in Romans 8. The spirit that lives in you and who God is promising will do this good work, growing you in holiness, you might wonder, is he really going to do that? Can he really do that? My sinful flesh is really bad. Can the spirit actually do that? What Paul just told us is, the same Holy Spirit in you is the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So there was a man who was literally dead for three days, something that has never happened 
before, hasn't happened after. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that lives inside of you. So we understand there's, there's hope for us here. The Spirit raised a literal dead man. He, he can certainly grow you in walking in the new life of holiness. Okay, so this, this makes it really clear. The Holy Spirit is really the most valuable possession anyone can have, right? Out of everything we have, everything we possess, the Holy Spirit is the most valuable possession a person can have. Now, let's remember what you had to do to get this Holy Spirit. You know, normally to get stuff that's really valuable, you have to do something to get it, right? Or do something to, to keep somebody, when we move from Maine, every time we move, Maria wants to throw away my Reebok pump. You guys might remember the Reebok pump. It had that superfluous thing on the tongue where you would pump it and it would make the shoe feel tighter. The thing that with other shoes you can do by tightening the laces, but they put a pump on there so they could charge you. Who knows how much my poor parents paid for that pair of shoes. I don't have both of them, but I've got one of them. And it's remained with us every time we move. And every time we move, Maria tries to compel me to throw it away. Not gonna happen. So that takes energy from me. It's this valuable thing, okay? We all have valuable things. The thing that's the most valuable thing a person can have is the Holy Spirit. Paul just told us it's the thing that will get us into the kingdom. It's the thing that grows us in holiness, that helps us to turn away from sin. So how did we get it? This is what Paul told us back in chapter 3, verse 2. He asks a rhetorical question. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, so by you working hard, being a good person, or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. That's how silly the question is in Paul's mind. Of course you didn't get the Spirit by working hard, by cleaning yourself up, by trying to be a good person. No, you were given the Spirit merely by coming to Jesus empty-handed in faith, knowing that he had exactly what you needed. That's how you were given the Spirit. Just like every other benefit of the gospel, the Spirit was a gift. So the point for us is don't take that gift for granted. Don't take the gift of the Holy Spirit for granted. Praise God for that gift, especially when you see the Spirit in action inside of you. That's when you should stop and praise God for that gift. So, so when you're patient with that coworker that you normally really struggle to be patient with, Praise God for the Holy Spirit, because you know that didn't come from your sinful nature. That came from the Spirit. When you find yourself being satisfied with where the Lord has you, after months and months of being discontent, you know that that didn't come from inside of you. Praise God for the Holy Spirit, who did that work inside of you. When you serve your family in the kind of sacrificial way that, that you would have avoided a year ago, praise God for the Holy Spirit. When you see yourself grow in holiness and turn away from sin, even if it's a modest change, praise God for the Holy Spirit. He's the one doing that work in you. Okay, so the, the Holy Spirit is the solution to your lifelong battle against sin. The battle will be there. The Holy Spirit is the solution. His, his dwelling inside of you is why you're growing in putting sin to death. But that doesn't mean as Christians we just get to sit back and put our feet up and let the Spirit do all the work, and we don't have to do anything. No, it's clear that we're supposed to actively press into the Spirit's work. The way Paul says in verse 16, we need to walk by the Spirit. 
And, and, and in the rest of our time, we'll talk about how Paul tells us to do that. How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, the Lord gives us two things to remember, and then one thing to kind of do actively on the ground, practically. So how do you walk by the Spirit? First, remember that you're not under the law any longer. That's the first thing he wants us to remember in order to walk by the Spirit. Now, when Paul talks about being under the law, he's talking about what the false teachers were saying in Galatia. They were saying, you Christians are still under the Old Testament law. To be saved, yeah, you've got to have faith in Christ, but you also have to do some of these particular things in order to have a relationship with the Lord, in order to have your sins covered, to be made righteous in God's eyes. With that in mind, look at verses 16 through 18. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So in order to walk by the spirit, remember that you're not under the law any longer. So what does Paul mean by that? Let's, let's connect those dots. Let's let Paul make sense of it for us. Flip a page over. Look back at chapter 3, verse 23 of Galatians. And that's where Paul says this. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so before Jesus came, God's people were held captive under the law, is the way Paul says it here. God's Old Testament law was kind of like a jailer. And it was like a jailer for, for this reason. So the law, external rules, even God's commands, they, they can't really change someone. Now, all the law can do, all commands can do on their own is condemn, at least for sinners like us. So, so when somebody is sentenced for a crime and the prison guard is taking them to their cell, the guard isn't saying to that prisoner, you know what, let me try to see if we can commute your sentence. I'll try to get you out of here. I, I, bet, I bet that I can get you out of here sooner than you think. No, that's not the guard's place, right? There's other people in place that can try to do that work, but the guard's job is just to take the guilty party and put them in their cell and shut the door. That's what the law does. It can only condemn the sinner. So when the law looks at you or looks at me, all it can do is say guilty. That's the law's job. All it can do is lock you up. And that's why over and over again in the book of Galatians, Paul's, Paul keeps telling us how crazy it is to rely on the law for your justification. How crazy it is to rely on the law for creating a relationship between you and the Lord, because the law can't do that. All the law can do is point at you and say guilty. All it can do is condemn. This is chapter three, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That's what the law does, it condemns. And it certainly can't transform a sinner. So it only condemns, but, but out of all the other things it doesn't do, Bottom of the list is transforming a sinner. It, it doesn't do that work. The law can't make anyone more holy, not on its own. Don't forget what we learned back in chapter 3, verse 21. That's where Paul says this. He says, is the law, God's commands, are they then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So you see what he says there? Even God's law, even God's commands on their own can't give a sinner life. Again, all it can do is condemn. It's like Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 23. He's talking about certain regulations from the law. He says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So all the sins that Paul just rattled off for us, he talks about how the spirits get to battle our flesh for our whole life. That's what he's talking about here. He says, commands of God on their own, there's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The law doesn't have the power to change you. So God's command to you to not lie, his command on its own, it doesn't have the ability to change your heart in, into one that wants to be honest. His command to not murder, that command doesn't have the ability to change your heart into, into a heart that only wants good for your enemy. When I was reading this week, and, and one old English Puritan writer, he said it this way. He said, a vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. Isn't that good? So he says, yeah, those guys in parliament, they can write a law and say to this vine, vine, produce grapes. That's not the way it works. A law can't produce life. So as far as battling sin goes, being under the law is a hopeless situation. It can't help you fight sin. It can't transform you. All it can do is condemn you. But see, if you're a Christian, you're no longer under the law. So Paul's been telling us all throughout Galatians, what, what we learn in this book is that the law's job was to condemn sinners, but only to get us to see our need for a savior. That was the law's purpose. It had a temporary purpose to say, you can't do these things perfectly enough. You need a savior to do these things on your behalf. It was designed to get us to Jesus. And see, once you came to Jesus, if you're a Christian, once you trusted in Christ fully to pay for your sins, then your relationship with God was created and now it's being maintained, not by your good works or efforts at all. It was created and it's being maintained by Jesus, by his work on your behalf. That's the gospel. And so verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. It's not the law that is trying to bring you closer to the Lord. You don't have to try to fulfill God's commands in order to have a relationship with God. No, your relationship with God is built on Jesus's work and you've been connected to Christ through trust alone in him apart from works. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, here's why I think Paul's reminding the Galatian Christians about this and us this morning. Because remember, this whole passage is about turning away from sin, right? Here's the works of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit so you turn from these things and produce the fruit the Spirit wants. Okay, so what does that have to do with this understanding of remembering that you're not under the law any longer? Well, I think this is it. There's a direct relationship between your progress and holiness and your recognition that your relationship with God isn't based on your holiness. I think there's a connection between those two things. In other words, the more we realize our relationship with God isn't based on our holiness, the more holiness we will have. Now, that might sound a little abstract and hard to grab onto, but, but, but let's bring it into our world. Think, think about it this way. So it's easier to perform for a father whose love you have, no matter how you perform, it's easier to perform for him than it is for a judge who will condemn you if you mess up, right? 
If you've ever tried out for anything before, if you've ever tried out for a team, if maybe you've ever tried out with an instrument or vocally, you understand that it's one thing to make free throws over and over and over again in your driveway when it's just by yourself. But if you're being evaluated by a coach, it's harder to make those free throws over and over and over again, right? Because you're being evaluated. Condemnation is on the brink and you feel that pressure. So it's, it's the way a lot of students, they might be able to rattle off the facts for that test if they're just in their room reciting them for their parents or doing it themselves. But then they sit in that room and they get the test. Some of you might be like this and you don't test well. It's a lot harder, isn't it? When you're under the gun. Well, the thing is the false teachers around Galatia were saying that these young Christians needed to perform in order to win God's favor. But see, the real gospel tells us in Christ, we're given God's favor right off the bat, the moment we first trusted in Jesus. So think about the difference between trying out for a basketball team in which your performance on the court in that hour will determine whether you make the team. Think about how you would feel in that situation, nerves otherwise, versus if the coach comes up to you before the tryout and says, hey, just between you and me, you've already made the team. So you're on the team, regardless of what happens in the next hour. It's actually going to be easier to perform in that hour, isn't it? That's what the gospel does for us. You've already been accepted. It happened the moment you first trusted in Christ. Full acceptance, permanent acceptance. You were justified. The end time verdict that God will give you when you're standing before the throne on the day of judgment, that verdict was brought into the present and declared to you the moment you first trusted in Christ. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, doesn't that sound appealing to you? Doesn't that sound so good to not have to try to work throughout this life hoping that you'll be good enough to maybe stand before the Lord on the day of judgment? But instead of that, to know that your relationship with God has been created, it's never going anywhere, all your sins, past, present, future, all forgiven in an instant, not by you working for it, but simply by trusting in Jesus and his work on your behalf. That's so good. It's such good news. So if you're not a Christian, consider that truth. Come talk to me about that. Send me an email. My email address is on the back of the worship guide at the bottom, scott at cbcws.org. Send me an email and, and let's talk about that some, because all that's necessary to get that relationship, to have those sins forgiven, is trust in Jesus. Coming to Jesus with an open hand and saying, I have nothing, I need you, Jesus. That's the gospel, the good news of, of Christianity. Well, as Christians, that has happened for us. And what Paul tells us is remembering that truth will help you become more holy, in part because the pressure's off. Listen to the way Paul says it in Romans 6.14. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under law, but under grace. Same thing he's telling us in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So that's the first thing to remember. Second thing to remember is that as a Christian, your flesh was crucified with Christ. You want to walk by the Spirit? This is the second thing to remember. Your flesh was crucified with Christ. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
So whereas the law can't muzzle your sinful flesh, can't bring it under control, the cross of Christ can. This is Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So here's how this works. The moment you first trusted in Christ to pay for your sins and save you, that faith united you to Christ. And then all that Christ has became yours. So not only does that mean it was like you were hanging on the cross and your sins have been paid for, you've been forgiven because the penalty has been paid, you were united with Jesus in the cross in that way, but, but it's also that your sinful flesh was being crucified with Christ. That's the idea here. When you trust in Jesus, you're united to him, and it's like your sinful flesh has been crucified on the cross. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So, when you feel tempted to be unrighteously angry or impatient, or to lust, or to be judgmental of a fellow believer, remember that your sinful flesh has been crucified with Christ. You, you don't have to follow those instincts any longer. So, so think about it this way. As, as a Christian, like we've talked about, you still have to deal with your sinful flesh. You still have to battle against sin. But think about it this way. Before you were a Christian, your flesh was your boss. You worked for it. If it told you to do something, if it gave you an assignment, you had to do it. You had no recourse. That's the non-Christian life. Before you were trusting in Jesus, your sinful flesh was the boss. Now, when you became a Christian, that boss, that sinful flesh, it didn't get fired. That happens when you die or when Christ comes back. No, you still have to work with the sinful flesh, but it got demoted. And now the Holy Spirit is the boss. And so what can happen is you can appeal to that Holy Spirit and he can tell that flesh what to do. So we still have to live with it, but the sinful nature has been demoted. It's been crucified. So we can, be, we can be bold in our desire to be holy because we know our sinful nature has more than met its match. You, you can aim to love those around you in a sacrificial way because your flesh was crucified with Christ. You, you can head toward being faithful with your eyes because your flesh was crucified with Christ. You can run the opposite direction of sinful worry and sinful anxiety because your flesh has been crucified with Christ. So the cross, it hasn't destroyed sin's presence in your life, but it has destroyed sin's reign in your life. So remember that your flesh has been crucified with Christ. But, but as we close, our, our passage is not only calling us to remember certain spiritual realities. It does that. We're also called to do something. In fact, the, the main imperative in our passage is found at the very beginning, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, walking by the Spirit, it includes remembering those true things that, that we've been talking about, but it also includes some external activity on our part. Look at the way Paul says it down in verse 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit. So this is our final point. We're supposed to follow the Spirit and go where he's going. So pursue the things the Holy Spirit wants. Now, when we hear that phrase, led by the Spirit, I think we usually think they're like this subjective leading, like maybe we have a decision to make, whether we get married, whether we don't get married, whether we sell this house, whether we buy another one, whether we leave this job, things like that. I think normally we think, oh, led by the spirit, 
is applicable for those kinds of situations. Lord, tell me what to do. But, but that's not what Paul intends with this, with this phrase. Listen to the way he talks about it in Romans 8. There he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. So I don't know if you caught it, but, but for Paul, being led by the spirit is the state of every Christian. You have the spirit and the spirit is leading. When someone trusts in Jesus, God gives them the spirit. The spirit leads us and it leads us all in the same direction toward the fruit of the spirit. So if you want to know how the spirit is leading you, then we have the answer to that question. Look no further. The spirit is leading you toward the qualities listed in verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the final point for us is pursue these things that the Holy Spirit wants. Look for ways to be loving and kind and gentle toward others. Seek to be joyful and have peace in every situation. Look to be good and faithful and have self-control when it comes to the command of God. Pursue those fruits of the Spirit. Now, last thing, for, for a lot of us, it may be helpful if we actually put a plan together for pursuing the things of the Holy Spirit. So, so I'll tell you with this passage what I'm gonna plan to do. You could find some other way to do it. You could pitch it completely, do something completely different. This week, to pursue the things the Holy Spirit wants, this week, I'm gonna read verses 22 and 23 every morning, look at the fruit of the Spirit, and pray that the Lord would grow me in those qualities. And then at night, I'm gonna read verses 22 and 23, and sort of let the Spirit through his word evaluate how I did with those qualities and then repent for ways that I fell short and ask the Lord to help me with those things. That, that could be a good practice for you too or something like that. Habits like that can be, really be helpful for our growth, right? In fact, one faithful Christian author named J.I. Packer, he's gone home to be with the Lord, but, but he says this. He says, forming habits is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. That's a good thing to remember too, right? Forming habits is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. So, so maybe try to incorporate reading and praying for the fruit of the Spirit this week. Of course, we can pursue these fruits with confidence and with hope. We pursue them as people whose, whose flesh was crucified with Christ and people who are no longer under the law. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let's pray together. 
And Father, we're so thankful for the Spirit. We understand that, that even if we intended to follow you, if we did not have the Spirit, we wouldn't get anywhere. Um, Father, we would still be owned by the sinful flesh. It would manhandle us the way that it did before we knew Christ. Father, we're so thankful that the Spirit is more than enough to overcome our flesh. We've seen that, Father. Those of us that have been Christians for, for a certain season at least, we've seen you grow us in turning away from sin and growing in holiness. We know that's the Spirit's work inside of us. We're thankful for it, Father. We pray that we would pursue the things the Spirit wants us to pursue, that we would walk in the Spirit. Father, would you do that work in us for our good and for the good of your kingdom and for your ultimate glory? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.